2 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 7, give ear to the word of God. Paul says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, again, we're getting back into our study through this book of 2 Timothy, Paul's uh, last letter. It's written, as the name suggests, to Paul's, you could say in some ways, sort of his apprentice in ministry. He calls him in 1 Timothy 1-2. He calls Timothy his true child in the faith. You may know 2 Timothy is believed to be the very last epistle that Paul wrote before his martyrdom in Rome, where according to church tradition, uh, he was beheaded under the reign of Caesar Nero somewhere in the mid to late 60s in the first century AD. Um, We have seen throughout our study, especially in the first chapter, but really throughout so far, that in some ways the the theme of this epistle, the theme of Paul's letter, uh, is that of a, it's a a two-sided coin. It's a call to bear witness for the gospel of Christ, and a call to be willing to suffer for doing so. You could say in a lot of ways 2 Timothy 1.8 is the central theme of the letter. And once again, Paul writes there in, in verse 8 of chapter 1, he writes to Timothy, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but what? Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So he... Paul himself, when he wrote this letter, was in prison awaiting execution. So Paul was already suffering. And he wants Timothy, who in some ways has kind of taken the baton from Paul, to know that a similar fate uh, may await him for following in Paul's footsteps. And the answer isn't to not follow in Paul's footsteps. The answer is to be willing to suffer. That's what he calls him in every pastor and in some ways every believer to be willing to do. Now, this, this, this theme of suffering for the gospel of Christ is repeated a number of times throughout this short letter, both by word and by example. It's no surprise that we see it again in our text in chapter 2. There in verse 3, what does Paul tell Timothy to do? He says it again, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So he's telling him multiple times in the first couple chapters already, it must be awfully important for him and us to hear. Now in this text, In verses 3 through 7, Paul presents us with three analogies, so to speak, uh, that stand for, in some way, the work of gospel ministry. The first one, which we're going to look at this morning in verses 3 and 4, is that of a soldier. Paul compares the gospel ministry to service as as a soldier in the military. The second one is that of an athlete, maybe an Olympic athlete, in verse 5. And the last one, which maybe we can identify with a little bit more in our part of San Diego, is a farmer. In many ways, the gospel ministry is like working as a farmer. 
None of these three, uh, maybe the athlete might be a little glamorous, but none of these three involve glamour. They all involve hard work and discipline and sacrifice. And as we're going to see, Paul actually uses those same three analogies uh, elsewhere in his epistles, and he uses them not only as an illustration uh, of the gospel ministry in particular, but also of the Christian life in general. Uh, we're going to be focusing our, our attention mainly on the first one of these analogies, that of the gospel ministry as a soldier. But this is also an analogy Paul uses as a soldier, that of to point of and illustrate the Christian life in a general sense, not just that of a minister. So if you were looking at our text this morning and you were kind of hoping you were off the hook, like this is about a minister, I'm not a minister, so I can just kind of relax and put my feet up in the holy lounge chair uh, I am happy to disappoint you in that regard. Uh, for all of us who believe in Christ are in some way called to be salt and light in this world. And we are called to confess Christ before an unbelieving world. And even at times, we are called to suffer for his sake. So the first thing we're going to see in our text is that Paul compares the gospel ministry and by uh, extension to the Christian life as well uh, to that of a soldier. Look at verses 3 and 4 once again. He says to Timothy, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And then he adds, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Now in saying this, uh, to make it clear, what he's really doing is comparing gospel ministry to warfare. This is not a peacetime illustration uh, this is not uh, easy does it military service. This is not reservist duty on the weekends or anything like that. But either way, it sounds like the ministry is not expected to be a life of comfort and ease. In fact, this analogy suggests there's some danger involved, doesn't it? Now I'll admit to you, when I went to seminary, I didn't think much about any dangers associated with gospel ministry, but it seems like these days that it's becoming more and more uh, likely and more and more of a possibility uh, and in Paul's case in Timothy's case and as Rob mentioned in his prayer uh, in many cases even today the danger involved is very literal and physical in nature it's not just spiritual dangers as, as important as those are uh, many even today are laying down their lives for testifying to the gospel of Christ this has not changed just because we were in the 21st century so when Paul calls Timothy and others to join with him in suffering for the gospel of Christ, think about this. Paul was awaiting his own execution when he wrote these words. And Timothy was well aware of that when he read them. Now, I, I served a number of years in the, the, we used to say, the world's greatest navy, the United States Navy. Um, I've often said that I don't believe I would have made it through college and seminary. I don't think I would even would have tried college and seminary if I hadn't spent time in the military first. Uh, I think the military, for me at least, in, it instilled in me a sense of self-discipline, attention to detail, following the chain of command, things I just hadn't learned on my own as a young man but picked up in pretty short order in eight weeks of boot camp. And uh, I remember my one of our company commanders in boot camp way back those many years ago, Master Chief Icorn was his name, this gruff, looked like he chewed nails and spit out bullets kind of guy. We were terrified of him for the first seven and a half weeks or so until we realized he didn't actually hate us. Uh, but I remember one day he had us all sitting down. I forget if it was in the barracks or not. But he had us all sitting down and he was lecturing us and he said, 
what's your job in the Navy? And all of us idiots raised our hands and started to say what our ratings were. So I was like, aviation electronics technician, Master Chief. And he's like, wrong. And he's yelling at us, wrong. Everybody, everything we all said, wrong, wrong, wrong. And we were all like, I know when I signed up, that's my school. Like, I signed up for that school. I'm not wrong. And he didn't talk back to Master Chief. Uh, but he said, wrong, 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 wrong. And he said, you know what your job is in the Navy? And we're like, what, Master Chief? Your job is to kill people and break things. We were all, I don't remember the recruiter telling us that was our job. Uh, he told me I was going to be an electronic technician. He said, no, your job is to kill people and break things. You may not be the one pulling the trigger. You may not be this. But your job, you were in the military. You are part of a war-fighting uh, service. And so everything you do, in some ways, the main goal was that. And so what he was doing, I believe, and doing well, and, and, and maybe scaring us a little bit, was reminding us of what we actually signed up for, that we weren't, this wasn't the Peace Corps, this wasn't some other job, this was military service. And it was deadly serious, even though at all times it didn't always seem or feel that way. And I think in some ways, Paul was doing something similar with a little bit less gruff of voice, I think, than, than Master Chief Eichhorn did, he was setting expectations for Timothy. Just as we young, wet-behind-the-ears recruits needed to know, what's our job really? What should our expectations be of what we might be called upon to do? So Timothy needed to know firsthand and for sure and with no uncertainty what his calling involved. You know, in the military, in some ways, if something has to get done, you just do it. I'm hoping that's still the case. I don't know from first-hand experience. It's been a long time. Uh, there's no punching the clock, especially when you're out at sea or out in the field. Uh, there's no off work in time of war. Lives are at stake, uh, both on the field of battle and back home. It's a completely different life than that of a civilian. I remember the day I got discharged with my good conduct discharge, thank you, from I was serving on the Kitty Hawk. Uh, and as soon as I got my ID card snipped in half in personnel uh, and got my discharge paperwork, my DD-214, I was the happiest man you ever saw uh, for a few days because I was a free man. It, it went from a version of what I felt like was slavery to being on my own for the first time in seven and a half years. Let's, Paul's telling him, your life in the military, so to speak, in Christ's army is not the same as that of a civilian. Now, Paul... Uh, Timothy probably never served in the military, but what he was being called to do in the ministry, uh, Paul wanted him to know was very much like that. Now, this wasn't the first time Paul used this analogy in talking to Timothy. In fact, in 1 Timothy 1.18, this is what he tells Timothy. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, here it is, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Sounds like Paul used this analogy quite a bit when he's talking with his young apprentice pastors. He wanted Timothy to wage the good warfare. Again, towards the end of 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, he writes this. It's like he bookends the letter with the same kind of idea. He says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue or chase after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Here it is. Fight the good fight of the faith. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. 
So ministers of the gospel, as well as some, in some ways as believers in general, are called to be good soldiers, to use Paul's phrase, enlisted in the army of Jesus Christ, waging the good warfare and fighting the good fight of the faith. So good soldiers, good warfare. Warfare is not good, but this kind of warfare is, because God actually saves lives through it, and then fighting a good fight. Nobody wants to fight, but some fights are good fights, and the gospel one is one of those. Well, notice the second thing, what Paul associates with, with being what it means to be a good soldier of Christ Jesus. He associates it, first and foremost, with suffering. What does he say? He says in verse 3, sharing suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Timothy's orders, so to speak, were not peacetime, shore-duty orders. His orders were wartime orders, and so suffering went with the territory. Suffering for Timothy and every minister of the gospel, in some ways, is to be expected. It should not be a surprise. It is to be expected. It is to be endured for the sake of the gospel of Christ. No wonder he tells Timothy back in verse 1, that he needed to be, quote, strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. All of these kinds of things, if you're, if you're listening and reading along and you're saying, this sounds like a tall order, yeah, it's a tall order. It's above our pay grade, so to speak. It's not something we are able to do on our own. No one is. None of us is capable on our own, left to ourselves, of doing any of these things, unless we are strengthened in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. You need the grace of God to do any of these things, much less to willingly suffer for the sake of the gospel. And notice the context of this command, as Paul says in verse 2, was that of entrusting the doctrine of Christ, quote, to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. In other words, passing along the Christian faith to others who would make it known to, in turn to others is going to be hard work. It's going to involve suffering. And it is in need of grace for, for him or anyone else to do it. Now, Paul also elsewhere, as we've said, compares the Christian life in general to warfare as well. Uh, the most familiar passage of, of such is probably that of Ephesians chapter 6. Maybe you're very familiar with that passage. That's where Paul speaks of the whole armor of God. In Ephesians 6 verses 10 to 12, Paul says this. I'm only reading half the passage, really. He says to, to the Ephesian church, the, the Christians in general, not just the elders, the pastors and whatnot, he says, verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil, in the, in the heavenly places. He spends the next eight verses going through each piece of armor one at a time, what it's used for and what it's, uh, how it is to help us in the day of battle. In other words, there is no such thing as a Christian, a genuine Christian, who is not enlisted in the army of Christ. In Ephesians 6, Paul doesn't say, you elders, put on the armor of God. It's a general command to the entire church. Men, women, and children alike all need those who are redeemed in Christ to put on the whole armor of God in order to withstand the devil. The greatest enemy you could, you could ever hope to be against or think to be against or have against you 
is not some literal, you know, army, uh, earthly army. It's it's Satan himself. No wonder we need the grace of God and the armor of God. If you are a believer in Christ, you are to serve Jesus Christ, who is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. That being the case, you have powerful spiritual enemies. What Paul says in verse 12, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Do you think of your life as a believer that way? Do you realize you have enemies in the spiritual realm, the world, the flesh, and the devil? Now, there are many things that could be said about ministry and life as warfare, but first among them is that it is not to be a life of comfort and ease. As a Christian, a life of comfort and ease should not be our expectation. A life of peace, yes. A life of joy in the Lord, yes. A life of peace with God, most certainly, but not a life of peace and comfort and ease. Peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ also brings warfare with the world, the flesh, and the devil. As Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And notice one thing there. Paul says the word, we. You know, we might think Paul, we might expect Paul to say, I. I don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Because Paul's Paul. He says, we. He's like, I'm in the trenches right next to you. He may be an officer. He's an apostle, right? But he's fighting right alongside of us and alongside the Ephesian church. He says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Well, not only is suffering to be expected for everyone who is in the army of Christ Jesus, but it's also to be expected that good soldiers of Christ Jesus will not allow other things to keep us back from the fight. Look at verse 4 again. He says, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who has enlisted him. The King James Version puts it a little bit better. I think it says, No man who wars... I'll use their language, who warreth or wars entangleth himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who has chosen him to be a soldier. Now, Paul in this particular context is not talking about sinful things. That shouldn't need to be said for Timothy or any other believer. Um, He's not talking about sinful life patterns and worldliness that are to be avoided as a matter of course for every believer. It shouldn't even need to be said, although it does need to be said in Scripture very often does. Hebrews 12.1 says something like that. Hebrews 12.1 says, Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So the Christian life is, is like a, a wartime service. It's also like a race, an athletic contest, like Paul says later in this text that we're looking at here this morning. And so we are to lay aside every weight, everything that holds us back or encumbers us. We are to lay aside every sin that clings so closely because it holds us back from running the Christian race that we should do the way that we should do it. Now, Paul is talking about not just sinful things, but letting other things, even good things, interfere with our wartime footing. John Stott, the great Bible commentator and theologian, puts it this way. The Christian who is intended to live in the world and not contract out of it cannot, of course, avoid ordinary duties at home, at work, and in the community. Indeed, as as a Christian, 
he should be outstandingly conscientious in doing and not dodging them. Nor should he forget, as Paul reminded Timothy in his first letter, 1 Timothy that is, either that, quote, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, or that, quote, God richly furnishes us with everything to enjoy, 1 Timothy 4, 4 and 1 Timothy 6, 17. Paul isn't contradicting what he said in the first letter. He goes on, so what is forbidden uh, the good soldier of, of Jesus Christ is not all secular activities, but rather entanglements, which though they may be perfectly innocent in themselves, may hinder him from fighting Christ's battles. You get what he's saying there and what Paul really is saying in our text? He's not even talking about sinful things. He's saying as a, soul, a good soldier of Christ Jesus, don't get so entangled and caught up in the affairs of this life that you are unable to do what you've been called by God to do. He's not telling Timothy to go join a convent or a monastery somewhere and hide from the world and be spiritual all by himself in a corner. But what he is saying is, don't get so caught up in the things of this life that you render yourself unfit for service because you're just too busy. You don't have any bandwidth or room in the schedule to do the things of God. Now, how many Christians today are so, to use Paul's word, entangled with the affairs of this life that they have no time or resources left for serving the Lord Jesus in any meaningful way? You know, we live in an age, and it gets more and more the case, where we have conveniences and helps that our, our fathers and grandfathers couldn't have dreamed of when they were our ages. The things that should save us time and effort uh, and yet with all these things it seems like we have no more time than anybody else ever had. It almost seems like we're busier than we ever have been and maybe some of that is because of these conveniences and things that we have. Now believers in Christ should avoid at least two extremes. The first of which uh, some of you have probably known in your life. We should not be so busy with church related activities seemingly every day of the week that we have no time for family, for rest, for living as salt and light among our unbelieving friends and neighbors. Some of you I know have told me that you have known what that is like. That there's something going on at church every single day of the week. Uh, we must not use Christian activity and activism as an excuse for failing to fulfill our God-given responsibilities in our homes as well as in our communities. On the other hand, and I think this one is much more prevalent in our day than, than the other extreme we just mentioned, uh, we as believers must also be careful that, to avoid the other extreme of being so preoccupied and entangled with the affairs of this life that we have no real time left to serve God. How many professing believers seem to spend half their time, energy, and resources chasing after entertainment or amusements of various kinds, or even of you know, extra financial security, whatever the case may be, how often do various forms of recreation even crowd out public worship on the Lord's Day? How often do those things even keep us from the house of God on God's Day? It should not be the case. You know, the Shorter Catechism devotes in its section on the Ten Commandments uh, it devotes no less than six questions and answers 
to the fourth commandment, that is to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, Exodus 20, verse 8. Here is question 60, just one of those six questions. It says, how is the Sabbath, and the Christian Sabbath is now Sunday, not Saturday. How is the Sabbath to be sanctified? Answer, the Sabbath is to be sanctified by a holy resting all that day, even, here it is, even from such worldly employments and recreations as are lawful on other days and spending the whole time in public and private exercises of God's worship except so much as is to be taken up in the works of necessity and mercy. You know, if somebody is in dire need of help and mercy, uh, the answer to them isn't, sorry, got to go to church. You know, if, if something like that comes along and it's on your way to church and you have to help, you know, the parable of the Good Samaritan would tell you, help the person. If that's why you miss church, God bless you, right? But if it's something lesser than that, it shouldn't be the case. So I'll ask you, are you resting from worldly employments and recreations on the Lord's day so that you can devote the day to worship and spending time with God in his word? Or are other things crowding that out? Are other things crowding that that kind of thing out? Are, Are things of this life crowding out the things of God even on the Lord's Day. You know, for example, uh, not to, to hit on this too hard, but youth sports leagues in our day commonly schedule their games on Sundays. You know, I, I'm getting older, so I, keep, I sound more and more like an old man. When I was a kid, when I was a kid, there was nothing like that on a Sunday. And if there were, nobody would play. I played Little League, never once had a game on a Sunday. We played football, never had a game on a Sunday. Now it's, we look across the street back here and there's, Three times the cars in their parking lot as there are in, in the churches half the time. And that just should not, should not be. You know, perhaps if more believers refuse to have their kids participate in those things on the Lord's Day, maybe that would finally affect a change. Do we allow other things to crowd out our own private times of prayer and Bible study? Do we allow other things to keep us from attending the gathered Bible studies together, whether it be on Sunday nights or other Bible studies that your church may have. Uh, we have men's Bible study, women's Bible study, Sunday night Bible. Do, do other things crowd those things out? Well, in conclusion, uh, John Piper, some of you know who that is. He has written years ago a book on missions. It's called Let the Nations Be Glad. Uh, in that book, he includes a chapter on prayer. And he says some things uh, that I think are applicable to what we're looking at here in Second Timothy in a general sense, and this is what he writes about wartime. He says, most people show their priorities and their casual approach to spiritual things. Oh, excuse me. Most people show by their priorities and their casual approach to spiritual things that they believe we are in peacetime, not wartime. In wartime, the newspapers carry headlines about how the troops are doing. In wartime, families talk about the sons and daughters on the front lines and write to them and pray for them with heart-wrenching concern for their safety. In wartime, we are on the alert. We are armed. We are vigilant. In wartime, we spend money differently. There is austerity, not for its own sake, but because there are more strategic ways to spend money than on new tires at home. The war effort touches everybody. We all cut back. The luxury liner becomes a troop carrier. He's describing the exact kinds of things that happened during World War I 
and World War II. People cut back at home to provide for the troops overseas. And so I'll ask this morning, what, what do your priorities show about what kind of time that you believe we are living in as Christians? Do you believe and act as if we are living in peacetime or wartime? If you were to examine, uh, so to speak, your calendar and your checkbook, what would those things reveal? You know, it's often said, uh, I think with good reason, that the scriptures uh, have a lot of commands, but two of them involve your time and our money. The first is the Sabbath, the fourth commandment. God asks for one day in seven. Now, we serve God seven days a week, but he especially puts his ownership on the Lord's day, on the Christian Sabbath. And we call it the Lord's day. It's his day. We don't do things like we do any other day. It's not Saturday part two. It's not any of those things. It's God's day. So the Sabbath, one day in seven, and the tithe, 10%. Notice in that equation, which one does God ask for more of you in? It's the Sabbath, a seventh as opposed to a tenth. God wants you and your time more than he wants your money. The money is a secondary, lesser thing. It's still a command to tithe. But it's more important that you give yourself to God first. You know, Paul, the apostle in in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he talks about how the the people of Macedonia, in, in extreme poverty, gave. But he mentions they gave themselves to the Lord first. They didn't just write the check. They gave themselves to God first, which is the more important thing, and the lesser things flowed from that. And so what does your calendar or schedule say about your priorities? Does it show that the things of God are your top priority? Or are lesser things crowding out that which is eternal and far more important? I know people don't use checkbooks these days, but... The two C's go together in my mind, calendar and checkbook. What is your checkbook or your online bank account, however you do it, these kids these days? um, What does your checkbook say about your priorities? Things are obviously getting tighter and tighter everywhere, despite what we are being told by people on the highest levels of our government. I keep seeing uh, statements from the president and others saying how great the economy is. I don't know if you've noticed, but I have. uh, my, My bank account says differently. Every time I fill my my tank up at the pump, it says differently. Things are getting tighter. The cost of gasoline, food, housing uh, has many of us uh, concerned with good reason. Uh, Do we trust God with our finances? Are we faithfully tithing, supporting the work of the church and of foreign missions? Or is comfort or security our goal? Do we remember to pray for our missionaries who serve as the proverbial tip of the spear on the front lines of making disciples of all the nations for Christ? Are we supporting them to the best of our abilities? You know, in Luke 16, verse 11, the Lord Jesus says, If then you have, been, have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? Something to think about. Brothers and sisters, uh, is it our aim in this life, as Paul says in verse 4, He says, to please the one who enlisted us over all else. He says that's the goal of a good soldier of Christ. To do what? To please Christ. To serve him and do what he, uh, observe all of his commands. Part of the Great Commission. 
not just baptizing them, but what? Teaching them, that's us, to observe everything he commanded, and lo, he's with us always, even to the end of the age. Is it your aim to please the Lord Jesus Christ in how you live, serving him in all things as a good soldier of Jesus Christ? You know, we can serve as good soldiers of Christ because Christ conquered on our behalf. The only reason you and I can serve as good soldiers of Christ is because Christ, on his own, kind of like David and Goliath, went forth as our champion, conquering in our place through his death and resurrection to save us from our sins. And now he calls us to follow and serve him as good soldiers of Christ. In Christ, Romans 8.37, Paul says, In him we are more than conquerors. Another military analogy. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Why? Because he loved us. When, When Paul says through him who loved us, what is he talking about? The cross and resurrection of Christ. It's because he died and rose again that we are more than conquerors in him or through him. And it's because of his death and resurrection that your service as a soldier of Christ cannot help but be victorious in the end. Not even death itself, verse 38, can change that. So if you're a believer in Christ this morning, let us earnestly seek to serve Jesus Christ as good soldiers of Christ and seek to please him in all things. Amen.